Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 16th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Hungary blocks a 50 billion euro EU aid package to Ukraine. The U.S. reportedly warns border agents about improvised explosive devices found by Mexico. Venezuela and Guyana agreed not to use force over Essequibo. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan suggests Israel can't reoccupy Gaza. A former bank manager in China is sentenced to life in prison for corruption. U.S. finance officials express concerns over AI risks. Donald Trump loses his immunity bid in the Carroll defamation suit. An ex-FBI counterintelligence chief gets over four years in prison. The U.K. will begin building next-generation stealth fighters. And the U.S. FDA warns of lead-tainted applesauce intentionally snuck into the supply chain. In our top story news from Ukraine, Hungary blocks a 50 billion euro EU aid package. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the Kyiv Independent, New York Times, Guardian, DW and Barron's. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban blocked a 50 billion euro or 54 billion dollar aid package for Ukraine at the EU summit in Brussels late Thursday, local time. This came hours after the EU leaders decided to open accession talks with Ukraine and Moldova and to grant Georgia EU candidate status. Before the summit's start, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said that Kyiv completed four mandatory reforms while recognizing anti-corruption efforts and recent amendments to Ukraine's minorities law. Granted candidate status in 2022 along with Moldova, Ukraine was given seven reforms as a precondition to start accession talks, with the move being hailed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as, quote, a victory for Ukraine, a victory for all of Europe. Following Hungary's veto, Charles Michel, the European Council president, said that negotiations on the financial package, which requires unanimity, which would resume early next year. Orban also objected to accession talks with Kyiv, but left the negotiating room, allowing the other 26 EU leaders to reach a consensus decision. For weeks, Orban has insisted he would block the EU opening membership talks with Ukraine. In the days prior to Thursday's EU summit in Brussels, EU Council President Charles Michel, as well as the leaders of France and Germany, Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, also held last-minute meetings with Orban in an effort to sway him. Orban's veto followed the European Commission's decision on Wednesday to release 10.2 billion euros or $11 billion of frozen funds to Hungary after it found that Budapest had met key conditions to strengthen the judiciary's independence, a move that some critics suggested was a bribe. However, due to EU complaints in other areas such as public procurement, prosecution procedures, and corruption, 21 billion euros or $22.9 billion of funds remain blocked. On Friday, Orban linked his approval of the Ukraine funding package to the release of the remaining EU funds for his country. On the two-day European Council summit, he argued that if the EU wants to change its budget law, Hungary must receive, quote, not half, then a quarter, but it must get the whole thing. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out the facts for us, and now we have a pro-establishment narrative from the Kyiv Independent. The EU's decision to open membership talks with Ukraine and Moldova is historic. 
Unfortunately, that Orban vetoed the 50 billion euro Ukraine aid package against the rest of the EU proves yet again that the Hungarian nationalist leader is standing not on the side of democracy and freedom, but is committing blackmail aligned with the geostrategic goals of the Kremlin. The EU must not allow itself to be bullied by Orban, who wants to prevent a democratic and Western-oriented Ukraine, as this would undermine his autocratic project. Insider paper gives us an establishment-critical narrative. It's remarkable that the EU is opening accession negotiations with Kyiv and is putting together a huge aid package while withholding tens of billions from Hungary, which it did before in 2022. To cynically bribe Budapest's approval, only 10 billion euros was released, which Hungary is entitled to anyway, while Ukraine is to receive 50 billion euros. Hungary has the right to insist on the release of all funds to approve the Ukraine aid package. EU leaders should bear in mind that Hungary still has several options to block Ukraine's accession process, and the road ahead could rightly be paved with Hungarian vetoes. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's an 18% chance that Hungary will leave the EU before 2030. Ten explosive devices are found at the U.S.-Mexico border. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, the Epoch Times, National Review, and CBS. Fox Business Network reported on Friday that U.S. Customs and Border Prevention, or CBP, is warning its agents about potential explosive devices at the U.S.-Mexico border after the Mexican military reportedly found and took into custody 10 improvised explosive devices at the border. Mexican authorities reportedly found the IEDs after the Tucson, Arizona Border Patrol spotted a gunfight at the U.S. southern border. A Tucson Supervisory Border Patrol agent arrested an armed person on the U.S. side who possessed a loaded AK-47 rifle, two loaded AK magazines, loose rounds, and a handgun. An internal safety alert dated December 13th warned Border Patrol agents to exercise extreme caution and report any possible armed subjects approaching the border with possible explosive devices. The Tucson-based Border Patrol reportedly exchanged fire with drug cartel members near a local ranch before discovering the 10 explosives. The internal memo comes as the southern border continues to experience waves of migrants, including 17,500 illegal immigrants who recently crossed the Tucson border in one week and 55,000 in the month of October. This comes amid reports that the Biden administration is seeking to compromise with GOP lawmakers on significant tightening of border policies, including regarding deportation and asylum, as an olive branch to help move forward aid packages to Taiwan, Israel, and Ukraine. Scott presented the facts, and the first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. In addition to being an issue of national sovereignty, the U.S. southern border crisis is an issue of national security. While Democrats often smear calls for border security as xenophobic, Americans can now see with their own eyes the eminent and existential national security problems that come with a porous border. The U.S. is a less safe place with an open border, and Democrats need to stop playing politics with American safety. And Salon.com brings us the Democratic narrative. Republicans are trying to politicize immigration at the southern border to score political points against Biden. While right-wing media says that Democrats favor open borders, the fact is that Democrats have for years proposed a common-sense and humane approach to border security and immigration. The Biden administration is in fact considering revamping border policies. The GOP must not be disingenuous in order to forge a true bipartisan consensus. 
The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative. It says there's a 3% chance that the U.S. will deploy troops in Mexico without the Mexican government's cooperation before 2029. Eric, I'm so glad that Verity exists. I I saw the headline for this story earlier today on somewhere online or on social media, and I assumed it was fake because it just sounds like one of those things someone would make up to make the border sound, you know, worse or better than it is or whatever. Now reading this, I'm surprised that headline I read was was true. So that's what I guess that's what we're here for. It's a scary world. Venezuela and Guyana agree not to use force over Essequibo. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, El País, Associated Press, DW, CNN and Forbes. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and Guyana's President Irfan Ali have reaffirmed their commitment to peace in the disputed oil-rich Essequibo region, agreeing to continue dialogue and not to use force to settle the controversy. This comes as they met in the Caribbean island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines on Thursday in the presence of members of the Caribbean Community, or CARICOM, and the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, or CELAC, representatives of the Brazilian government and UN observers. Though issuing a joint declaration vowing to refrain from escalating any conflict, both parties failed to reach a deal on how to resolve the dispute. Ali and Maduro agreed to create a joint commission to address the problem and meet again in Brazil within the next three months. Disputes over Essequibo, a region that accounts for two-thirds of Guianese territory and is home to 15% of its population, date back to the 19th century, with the territory awarded to Guiana by international arbitrators in 1899. Venezuela has renewed its claims following ExxonMobil's major discovery of oil in Essequibo's offshore waters in 2015. Tensions soared earlier this month as a Venezuelan referendum approved the creation of a state within the Essequibo region a move that Guyana has called a step toward annexation and an existential threat. As the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, is expected to rule in favor of Guyana keeping the territory, Caracas has sought to push for negotiations while Georgetown argues the issue must be resolved there. Last week, U.S. Southern Command carried out airborne maneuvers with the Guyana Defense Forces. Thanks, Eric. News source Guyana brings us the pro-establishment narrative. While this deal has eased fears of war following weeks of Venezuelan aggression, it doesn't mean that Guyana will retreat from its position of sovereignty over Essequibo. The ICJ must provide a final ruling on the matter, and it's up to Venezuela and them alone to come to terms with the legal norms that continue to preside over global current affairs. The establishment critical narrative coming from Venezuela analysis. Although the tense meeting has not produced an immediate end attention, It was certainly a diplomatic breakthrough after repeated refusals by Guyanese officials to engage in direct dialogue with their Venezuelan counterparts and prospects of a U.S. military intervention to help Guyana protect the interests of ExxonMobil. The ICJ has no jurisdiction over this matter, so a bilateral deal must be found. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus predicting a 30% chance that Venezuela will invade Guyana before the year 2030. This is almost like a throwback story. When I was a kid, as the Soviet Union was kind of winding down, you know, you would buy a globe in like 1988. And by 1989, the borders are all wrong. Countries are all yeah. wrong. Like it's, it's gone. I can't imagine what a cartographer's nightmare it would be these days. I know, right? Unless, I mean, you basically got to get a job with Google or, <laughs> yeah. or hit the road, I think. Right, yeah. right. U.S. officials say Israel cannot reoccupy Gaza and war may continue in another phase for months. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC News, The Times of Israel, and The Guardian. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan continued his diplomatic tour on Friday, meeting with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, 
a day after meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He said the U.S. and Israel were having intensive discussions regarding Israel's war goals and its conduct, namely high civilian casualties across Gaza. He confirmed that the war could potentially continue for months, but clarified that the U.S. wants Israel to shift its strategy to more precise ways on targeting the leadership before focusing on intelligence-driven operations. During Sullivan's meeting with Abbas in Ramallah, the two discussed ending the war in Gaza and the U.S.'s goals for the Strip's post-war leadership. Netanyahu has continually said that Israel will not allow the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank and is led by Abbas, to return to Gaza, and that Israel would maintain security control over the Strip. Sullivan said it would neither make sense nor be right for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. Sullivan did say, however, that the Palestinian Authority would have to undergo significant changes to be able to govern Gaza, suggesting that the PA should be revamped and revitalized, needs to be updated in terms of its method of governance, its representation of Palestinian people. Meanwhile, on the ground, the Israeli Defense Forces stated that it mistakenly shot and killed three hostages whom it mistook as a threat in battle. The IDF has disseminated lessons learned to its troops from the incident. Fighting continues to rage in Gaza's urban centers, with dozens being rushed to hospitals in Deir al-Balah, Khan Yunus, and Rafah, and communications in the Strip have been intermittent since Thursday. An Israeli drone strike in Khan Yunis on Friday wounded two Al Jazeera journalists, Wail al-Dado and Samer Abu Dhaka. Dado has become particularly well-known to viewers across the Middle East after learning live on air that his wife, son, daughter, and grandson were killed in an Israeli airstrike in the first month of the war. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left nearly 19,000 people in the Gaza Strip dead, many of whom it claims are children. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Scott. The first spin is a pro-Israel narrative. It comes from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon the temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza threw Hamas's military leadership off kilter and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. And the pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye, Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. The nerds at Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by September of 2067. So wait a minute. It seems like it was like 2100 or something before, wasn't it? I don't remember anyway. either. Yeah, it does. It does feel like that's irrelevant. Like they've kept it locked at 50%, but then it's right. the year that's moving. Yeah. The former Bank of China manager has been jailed for life. Here are the facts as agreed upon by South China Morning Post, BBC News and BNN. Former Bank of China branch manager Zhu Guajun has been sentenced to life in prison after being convicted in connection to the embezzlement and misappropriation of over $483 million between 1993 and 2001. Zhu was on the run for 20 years until the U.S. extradited him to China in 2021. 
The court ruled that Zhu and his accomplices embezzled over 900 million won, or 125.4 million U.S. dollars, Hong Kong dollars, and German marks through fraudulent loans, misappropriated loan payments, and the siphoning of bank funds to other accounts. The group was also convicted of misappropriating another 1.4 billion won for other illegal purposes. Besides his life sentence, Zhu, who said he won't be appealing his conviction, will also be banned from political activities and will have all his assets confiscated. His two accomplices, Yu Zhendong and Zhu Xiaofan, have been sentenced to 12 and 13 years in prison, respectively. This comes as President Xi Jinping has pledged to crack down on what he calls the hedonistic lifestyle of bankers. Former chairman of the BOC Liu Liang was arrested in October for alleged bribery and illegal loan handouts, with former chairman of China Life Insurance Wang Bin sentenced to life in prison in September for bribery. More than 100 officials and executives in the finance industry have reportedly been brought down in 2023 under Xi's crackdown on corruption, and authorities look to continue promoting financial stability. China Daily brings us the pro-China narrative. Considering the economic pain Zhu caused for the government and the Chinese people, this sentence is more than fair. After decades of thievery and another 20 years of hiding from justice, the government has finally put an end to this corrupt scheme and its perpetrators. The anti-China narrative comes from New York Times. Don't be fooled by Xi's faux egalitarianism. He isn't cracking down on successful businessmen due to their greed, but rather due to their unwillingness to completely bow to his regime. He's investigated, sanctioned, or arrested dozens of executives, from the finance industry to the tech industry, to solidify Communist Party loyalty among the nation's elite. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that China will officially cease to be a socialist state by January 2097. Eric, say what you will about this particular bank branch manager, but I miss the days where you could bring like some, uh, you know, some Danish in and it would be at a, you'd be at a, to the bank manager and it would knock a couple points off your mortgage rate or something. You know, you used to be able to kind of make things happen with the bank manager. Not, not, not so much anymore. It's all computers. Well, Wait a minute. Wait, wait. It only took you a Danish to get the two points off? Wait, wait. <laughs> hang on just a second. The U.S. is concerned about AI risk to the financial system. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CBS, Bloomberg Law, Al Jazeera, and the Economic Times. U.S. federal regulators issued a warning on Thursday, the first of its kind, about the potential harm artificial intelligence could have on the financial system. The Financial Stability Oversight Council formally characterized AI as an emerging vulnerability. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen signaled that American oversight agencies would prioritize AI and the threats the technology may pose in 2024. President Joe Biden issued an executive order establishing privacy and security rules for AI. In its annual report, the council stated that although AI holds great potential for cost savings, increased productivity, and other advantages, it can also introduce certain risks, including safety and soundness. It is feared that financial institutions could overlook biased or erroneous results and potentially roll back transparency if the models operate as a black box. In May, a viral AI-generated image that appeared to depict an explosion close to the Pentagon briefly triggered tremors in the stock market and a momentary sell-off. Officials expressed concerns about bad actors manipulating markets on Thursday. Despite turbulence earlier this year around the failure of some U.S. regional lenders, the annual study concluded that the U.S. banking sector is robust and the financial system is resilient. Scott, thanks for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from CNN. 
Artificial intelligence in financial services needs to be carefully implemented and supervised. It's wise for U.S. regulatory agencies who have issued a warning and identified AI as a potential vulnerability. The financial system may suffer greatly if the application of advanced models is left unchecked, be it from bad actors or the obtuse complexities of the systems themselves. Consumers could pay a huge price. Narrative B comes from Ernst & Young. AI technology has made tremendous improvements to the financial sector and has become essential in the battle against financial crime and fraud. It's an effective method for risk assessments that can assist banks in predicting loan defaults and stop insurers from overpaying claims. Overall, the benefits of AI in the financial sector greatly outweigh the risks. There's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculus. It says there's a 34% chance that AI will be given legal rights or be protected from abuse anywhere in the United States before 2035. Trump loses his immunity bid in the Carroll defamation suit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, USA Today, NBC, Reuters, and Forbes. The Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan on Wednesday upheld a federal judge's ruling that former President Donald Trump can't claim presidential immunity in the defamation case against him brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. In 2019, while he was president, Trump responded to Carroll's accusation that he sexually assaulted her by saying her claim was, quote, totally false and calling her a woman who has also accused other men of things. In a different civil case that concluded in May, Trump was ordered to pay Carol $5 million because a jury found him guilty of sexual abuse and defaming her by denying her accusations in 2022. He has appealed that ruling. In the defamation case, a three-judge panel has ruled that Trump had waived his presidential immunity by waiting too long to raise it. Trump's lawyers said they planned to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Second Circuit also determined that U.S. District Lewis Kaplan's June decisions denying Trump's immunity claim and observing that the jury's findings in May applied to the defamation case as well were correct. Wednesday's ruling comes as the U.S. Department of Justice requested the Supreme Court rule on Trump's claims of presidential immunity in the criminal case related to his alleged attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Thanks, Eric. Fox News brings us the pro-Trump narrative. Trump should be able to invoke presidential immunity regardless of how long it took for his defense to raise the issue. This is a flawed ruling, and the Supreme Court must correct this wrong. Luckily, the Supreme Court has been asked to take up a similar question in Trump's federal criminal case in Washington. So we'll soon find out if this political witch hunt against a former president and future Republican nominee can continue. The Daily Beast has an anti-Trump narrative. These are the legal ploys the twice-impeached, quadruple-indicted former president must enact to avoid accountability. Trump has committed so many crimes, he can't possibly fight off all the charges. His current push to claim presidential immunity is not working out, and accountability is inevitable. And the nerd narrative from Attaculus, a 55% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. The ex-FBI counterintelligence chief is sentenced to over four years. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Daily Wire, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and BBC News. After pleading guilty in August to one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, former FBI agent Charles McGonigal was sentenced on Thursday to more than four years in prison for violating U.S. sanctions by working with Russian diplomat Sergei Shestikov to help Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska. McGonagall worked as the head of counterintelligence at the FBI's New York office until he retired in 2018. One of the federal prosecutors, Hagen Scoton, said in court Thursday that McGonagall's position was one of the most important anti-spying jobs in the country, 
adding that it should have been the crowning achievement in his FBI career. He also investigated former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page and received information from Hillary Clinton's emails with a foreign diplomat. Conversation helped launch the probe into alleged Trump-Russia collusion, accusations a special prosecutor ultimately said were never technically plausible. The former agent has now been found to have tried to help Deripaska get off the U.S. sanctions list. In 2021, McGonagall, whose cell phone helped investigators uncover his relationship with Shestikov, agreed to investigate a competitor of Deripaska in exchange for hidden payments. His end of the bargain with the businessman included helping one of his representatives, Evgeny Fokin, get his daughter an internship at the New York Police Department. McGonagall is expected to be sentenced on February 16th for a separate case involving money laundering from an Albanian intelligence employee. Federal prosecutors also accuse him of abusing his authority by having an agent chauffeur a woman who claimed to be his girlfriend and improperly using his FBI credentials and parking placard after he left the agency. U.S. District Judge Jennifer Reardon said McGonagall, whose career included working terrorism cases such as 9-11, made profoundly important contributions to our government, but that his crimes were serious and threatened national security. This came in response to his lawyers citing his career accomplishments as reasons for him to receive a non-incarceration sentence. Thanks, Scott. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Washington Post. As the U.S. has worked hard to deter the power and influence of these Russian billionaires through sanctions, McGonagall chose the greedy route by enriching himself at the expense of American national security. It's a shame that a man with such a decorated career should find himself in this situation. No one is above the law, even FBI agents with storied careers. And the establishment critical narrative from Newsweek. McGonagall hit his own corrupt ties to Russian oligarchs while launching the now-debunked Russia probe into an elected U.S. president. During the two years the government was conducting its case against Trump, one of its top so-called investigators was getting rich doing exactly what he accused others of doing. I mean, I can understand, you know, uh, wow. using your parking pass, you know, or, or stealing a stapler or some post-it notes from the workplace when you're done. But I don't know if you're working for the FBI, I wouldn't... Uh, mess around i would just kind of leave things let, let things lie they take their staplers very <laughs> yes. seriously in the Apparently fbi so yes <laughs> the united kingdom to build next generation fighter jets here are the facts as agreed upon by daily mail sky news the japan times evening standard and the telegraph following the signature of an international cooperative accord in tokyo on thursday the UK will build a, quote, next generation of stealth fighter military aircraft. The UK will be manufacturing the planes for Japan, Italy, and the British military. Twelve months ago, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced a collaborative international effort to build fighter planes with advanced technology and supersonic capability. The Global Combat Air Program, or GCAP, will have its headquarters for the partnership in the UK with the new, quote, Tempest model, intended to replace the Royal Air Force Typhoon by the year 2035. The three governments have formed the GCAP International Government Organization, which will define the capabilities needed for the aircraft and supervise the project, led by Italy's Leonardo, Japan's Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, and Britain's BAE Systems. The UK has committed a total of £2 billion or $2.5 billion to the deal, which, according to the UK's Defense Secretary, Grant Shapps, is, quote, crucial to global security and will produce an outstanding aircraft that all three countries will employ to replace their existing fleets. According to the UK Ministry of Defense, the completed Tempest will have radar with the potential to deliver 10,000 times more data than existing systems. 
In the digital cockpit of the airplane, pilots will have access to virtual reality in order to access critical information. The Typhoon is expected to be a sixth-generation supersonic aircraft with cutting-edge sensors. The new aircraft, according to Shaps, quote, will set the standard for fighter jets of the future. CNN brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Upon announcing the joint venture in December of last year, the leaders of Italy, Japan, and the UK said that the sixth-generation fighter jet is built to match or surpass the finest airplanes now in use by nations like China, Russia, and possibly even that of the U.S. A new fighter is needed to preserve regional stability and defend democracy and the rules-based global order. Esquire gives us an establishment critical narrative. Advanced aircraft are notorious for being black holes within the military-industrial complex when it comes to wasting taxpayer money. Take the enigmatic US F-35 boondoggle that racked up costs 80% over budget while being 10 years behind schedule. The biggest winners of these projects tend to be defense contractors, not democracies worldwide, and certainly not citizens footing the bill. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that at least 11.8% of NATO member states, excluding the USA, will increase their real 2023 defense spending by at least 25% compared to 2022. Our final story, the FDA says lead-contaminated applesauce may have been intentional. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Across America, the CDC, NBC, Politico, and CNN. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has warned that a recently discovered lead contamination of three cinnamon applesauce pouch brands may have been intentionally poisoned. The brands are Weiss, Wanabana, and Schnucks, and they are sold by Amazon, Dollar Tree, and other internet shopping outlets. The FDA earlier this week said there were 64 reported cases of contaminated cinnamon applesauce and cinnamon apple puree with all adverse effects found in children under six years old. The federal agency also stated that it's launched an on-site investigation into Ecuador's Austro Food Facility and working alongside Ecuadorian authorities to probe Negasmart. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there have been 125 lead poisoning cases being investigated, mostly in toddlers across 22 states. Of those 125, 46 have been confirmed to be linked to the contamination. 68 are likely linked and 11 are suspected to be linked. The CDC says children exposed to lead are at risk of serious health issues, including damage to the brain and nervous system, slowed growth and development, and behavioral issues. The exposure can also be deadly at high levels. The FDA has warned that the pouches, which have been recalled, have a long shelf life and that those who have purchased them should check the ones they have. Austro Food and Wanabana USA are already establishing a program to reimburse healthcare costs and building a website to issue refunds for the recalled products. FDA officials are speculating that the intentional act of adding the lead-tainted applesauce occurred from an actor in the supply chain likely linked to the Ecuador facility, who did not anticipate the products arriving in a country like the U.S. with a robust regulatory system. The applesauce may have been tampered with to falsely adjust the production costs to sell at a higher price. Scott, thanks for presenting the facts. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration provides our first spin. It's a pro-establishment narrative. The FDA is working to establish the exact number of contamination cases and how they occurred, as well as offer guidance for both current victims and future prevention mechanisms. Ecuadorian authorities have also helped strengthen this investigation. It's vital to clamp down on product tampering in the global supply chain. Establishment critical narrative from NBC. 
Coming on the heels of last year's contaminated baby food crisis, this applesauce debacle is more proof of how porous America's health safety net is. To make things worse, before either of these stories broke, a 2019 report found that 95% of baby foods tested had heavy metals in them. This isn't a one-off story about a bad actor. The FDA needs to turn its many investigations into far more effective health and safety protocols. The nerds from Metaculus providing our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. They say there's a 32% chance that Soylent-like meal replacements will be labeled unhealthy before 2030. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 16th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. 